Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 52 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And back with me after a bit of a hiatus is Tom McMeekin. I was looking back through previous show notes, and I think, Tom, we spoke about six months ago. Yeah, Shane, that sounds about right. It's always a great pleasure to be back on the show, and I'm really looking forward to having a chance to geek out with you again. Awesome. All right. So good to be back behind the mic. And more so, what's weird is we're actually face-to-face. It's nearing the end of July. So sticking with recent tradition, we're going to pause following our episode on all things Aurora and come at you with a raft of short, sharp, and important updates that have occurred in the month of July. And being Tech Chat, we'll cover these at the level you expect, but more importantly, ask the hard questions of what and why. How's that sound, Tom? Sounds perfect, Shane. But before we do that, let's have a quick look at some of the news and recent events that's been going on. Hopefully, some of you got to sample the AWS Innovate uh, in mid-July. And so this included some of our AWS Tech Chat's own. Myself was there um, and just talking about, about various different types of technology domains. And it was a huge online event. Great participation across the globe. Awesome. I didn't see you there, Tom, and I also didn't see Gabe, but yes, huge hundreds of thousands of viewers. And if anyone did see Tom or Gabe, drop us a message. More so, were they any good? Tom, it's past mid-year now, so most of the summits are front-loaded towards the front of the year, but they are still rolling on, although a little less densely packed. Yeah, that's right, Shane. We still have plenty of summits going on. Not the usual five per month, but as you alluded to. Um, but yes, only two coming up in the month of August. So if you think about uh, two that's happening, one uh, close in uh, in ANZ, um, the first is the Public Sector Summit for, for that's going to be hosted in Canberra. Now, this is going to be across two days, uh, the 20th and 21st of August. Uh, so for those customers who have a focus around public sector and operate in the public sector for the ANZ uh, market, then book your flights and then fly into Canberra and, and check that out. And we've also got uh, another sum, uh, summit happening in Mexico, Mexico City on the 29th of August. Now, in terms of region, regions were still uh, sitting static at 21 regions, 66 AZs, and edge locations as well are remaining static at 166, just for now. So other than summits, there are other events that tickle your fancy. We spoke about them in past episodes, so we're not going to cover them today. Stay curious, stay hungry, and search AWS events in your favorite search engine, and there'll be something, no doubt, to tickle your fancy either online or in person in your local geography. Now, before we jump into the show, a few public service announcements. We are an ever-growing podcast, so I just want to say a special thank you to our listeners of the show. But by the end of June this year, we have eclipsed the number of downloads in all of 2018, so 100% year-on-year growth. So again, a huge thank you to those who listen and spread the word. But more so, I'm excited about the recent listener feedback we've been receiving. This one was a little bit left field of the norm. We know I like a good dad joke. Heck, we're both dads here, Tom. And I think it's a rite of passage to tell bad dad jokes. Yeah, it is a rite of passage, Shane. Um, but the, and, the, and what I like about dad jokes is nothing better watching someone's face cringe, but with a hint of a smile in there. Exactly. So look, I hear from a listener that her friend was an online dating website and in her description, she had she was a developer. 
Hang on, Shane. Where are we going with this? You know we have a legal team that reviews this show. All good, all good. So, it is tech-themed. So, it turns out a fellow contacted her on said dating platform with a joke. And when she told her friend the joke, the friend had to laugh. Yeah. So, what, what was the joke, Shane? Why do developers wear glasses? So, they can see sharp. Ta-ding! <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Which way does she swipe? I guess it depends if she liked the bad dad joke or not. We could debate this further, but on with the show. Now, in the past few episodes, we have spoken quite a bit about a few recent updates to CloudWatch. In the past few episodes, we've spoken about a few of the recent updates to CloudWatch. In May, we added percentiles as metric filters, a really awesome update, meaning you don't need to constantly tweak your metrics to understand what normal is. Now, over the years, CloudWatch has evolved into having some pretty interesting capabilities to give customers a comprehensive platform to monitor your applications, understand and respond to performance changes. But Tom, we haven't rested on our laurels here, and there are a few announcements for CloudWatch that have snuck out the door. And before I hand the mic over to you, I think we'd better quickly level set what CloudWatch is for those listeners who are new to the show. So CloudWatch is a monitoring and management service built for developers, system operators, and this year's favorite term, Site Reliability Engineers. CloudWatch provides you with data and actionable insights to monitor your applications, understand and respond to system-wide performance changes, optimize resource utilization, and get a unified view of operational health. Marketing description aside, I think we can sum it up as a monitoring platform at the core of the AWS cloud, where all services or even your own custom services can emit metrics to which CloudWatch turns into actionable insights. So Tom, let's go back to these updates. Yeah, okay. So on with the first update. So um, CloudWatch anomaly detection is is pretty cool. Um, what I like about this, it's, it's currently in preview, um, but it's a cool little addition to CloudWatch because it's starting to apply machine learning to continuously analyze the specific CloudWatch metric that you specify. So what it's doing is go, it's going to determine a nominal baseline, surface these anomalies, all without user intervention. Now, the real sugarcoating here is what I like is that it adapts to trends and it will help to identify unexpected changes in performance or behavior. What an awesome idea and really about time. And I guess it helps find that needle in the haystack. You know, what is normal versus what is abnormal? Yeah, that's right. So when you enable anomaly detection for a metric, CloudWatch will apply machine learning to the metrics past data to create a model of the metrics expected values. So if you think about the machine learning algorithm, it's being trained of up to two weeks of metric data, but you can enable anomaly detection on a metric even if the metric does not have a full weeks, um, or sorry, a full two weeks of data. Now, the model generates two metrics, one that represents the upper band of the normal metric behavior and another that represents the lower band. I like to think of it as a seasonal analysis of any type of metric we collect, understanding how these are trending. Think you know, day over day, week over week, and then starting to alert you to um, if it detects any abnormal trends. So if you're thinking of having a play, it may take up to 15 minutes after enabling this before detection plans are available for alerting and graphing. I managed to play with this feature. Firstly, if you want to know how to enable anomaly detection, I did this in the console, under metrics, add your metric, then actions. But like everything else, you can use the CLI or SDK and you can retrieve the upper and lower values of the model's band that Tom just mentioned by using the get metric data API request with the anomaly detection band metric math function. Some things to note, anomaly detection isn't free and is available on standard resolution alarms only. Each anomaly alarm costs 30 cents per month and that is in July of 2019. It's in preview so 
features may be added or changed before announcing general availability. And lastly, it's available in all AWS regions except Asia-Pacific Hong Kong, AWS GovCloud, China, Beijing region, and China, Ningxia region. Yeah, Shane. So I love what I love about anomaly detection. It's starting to apply that democratization of machine learning um, and, you know, being able to allow customers to get um, get that visibility and, and make that easy to forecast what that demand is going to be for your workloads and then also being able to alert on that. If, it's, uh, if your application, whether it's based on containers um, or other, um, you know, being able for you to detect if your applications are operating um, at an optimal level. Now, speaking of containers, Shane, the next recent announcement in CloudWatch is Amazon CloudWatch Container Insights. And as the sticker says, it's a fully managed service to help monitor and troubleshoot containers. Wearing my field SA customer hat here, this is something customers have been asking for for a long time. Containers by nature can appear as a bit of a black box with CloudWatch, not really being able to extract the telemetry that you, the developers and ops people are asking for. I'm working with a customer making the shift to containers at scale, and there are many questions about observability and tracing and the trade-offs they're making by shifting into containers. And any good architect, developer, or insert IT role worth their grain of salt will know that there are trade-offs with any technology. But Container Insights goes a bit further to allowing you to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, that's right. So Container Insights is going to provide you more in-depth telemetry that you're currently getting today through CloudWatch when you're looking at ECS or EKS. Um, clusters. So from an EKS perspective, think of um, think of things like pods, service, clusters, even namespace. You can start to build up this visibility of all those different um, different aspects within your EKS or kube cluster. And from an ECS and Fargate standpoint, think of tasks at the task level, at the service level, and also at the cluster level as well. Now with Container Insights, you can do things like isolate performance metrics and spikes or understand how many times a specific pod or task has been recycled. Uh, You can also do things like drilling down into the performance or even the application log of that task itself. Now ultimately leading to potentially automated remediation to applications both at the infrastructure level but also at the application space as well. So pretty cool. So the first thing I would want to know is how does this work? So setting up Container Insights is different depending on ECS and EKS. So pop in CloudWatch Container Insights into your favorite search engine to get the specific documentation for either ECS and EKS. Now we don't have time to dabble in both flavors of container orchestration engines. Let's look through the lens of ECS as it by far and large represents the lion's share of container orchestration running today in the AWS cloud. You can use either the Amazon ECS console or the AWS CLI to enable Container Insights on Amazon ECS. Container Insights isn't GA. It's in public preview, so the same disclaimer features we mentioned above also apply. But additionally, during this public preview, only new clusters can be enabled for Container Insights. Additionally, if you are using Amazon ECS on Amazon EC2 to collect network and storage metrics from Container Insights, you must launch an instance using an AMI that includes the Amazon ECS agent version 1.29 or greater. During the public preview, you can't enable Container Insights when you use AWS CloudFormation to create a new cluster. As a workaround, you can use the AWS CLI to set the account level permission to enable Container Insights for any new Amazon ECS cluster created in your account. And you can do that by using the AWS ECS put hyphen account hyphen setting string and enable Container Insights. Because Kubernetes, or as a cool kid say, kube or K8 is all the rage, I need to ask a K8 question, Tom. Can you use this with self-managed K8? 
Yeah, great question, Shane. Really important. So the agent has been certified with COPS on AWS or even COPS on premises. So you can deploy this same agent and give you the same level of visibility as you would get from an EKS cluster or an ECS or Fargate deployment as well. So this will provide AWS native observability service provided automated summary and analysis of compute capacity pre-built visualizations for dashboards, application and microservice tracing, and reliability and security collection metrics. So to summarize, CloudWatch Container Insights provides you more insights into your containers. Operational data is collected as performance log events. These are entries that use structured JSON schema that enables high cardinality data to be ingested and stored at scale. From this data, CloudWatch creates higher level aggregated metrics at the cluster, node, pod, task, and service level as CloudWatch metrics. CloudWatch Container Insights are free. Just remember the caveats I spoke about in which you really need a greenfield cluster, but hey, you know, it's containers. So really instantiating a new stack shouldn't be too hard and allow you to test if this new feature in CloudWatch is going to work for you. So there we go, a few changes around CloudWatch. To me, Tom, monitoring is a hallmark of any good IT organization. We talk about CICD, being able to move faster, hundreds of deployments per day, and you can only move faster if you're able to detect quickly. Apart from these two CloudWatch features, what's been your favorite update to CloudWatch over the years, Tom? Yeah, Shane, so CloudWatch has been around for a number of years, but I'm going to go back to um, 2016 when we launched CloudWatch Events. You know, CloudWatch Events is where it really started to get easy to track and respond to changes within the AWS ecosystem. In fact, you know, this is a great segue into our next announcement, Shane. That wouldn't be by any chance an entire new service that was launched in the New York Summit, would it, Tom? It might be, Shane. It might be. I wonder if those listening at home have bridged this together. Oh, Shane, those jokes. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. <laughs> Let's continue. So introducing Amazon EventBridge. Um, so Amazon EventBridge, which is a serverless event bus that routes real-time data streams from your applications and services to targets like AWS Lambda. EventBridge facilitates event-driven application development by simplifying the process of ingesting and delivering events across the application architecture and providing built-in security and error handling. The PubSub pattern is nothing particularly new. AWS has services like SNS that support this pattern, but Amazon EventBridge builds upon and extends CloudWatch events. It uses the same service API endpoint and the same underlying service architecture, but includes new features that enable you to receive events from SaaS partners and your own applications. Existing CloudWatch events users can access their existing default bus, rules, and events in the all-new EventBridge console and in the CloudWatch events console. EventBridge uses the same CloudWatch Events API, so all of your existing CloudWatch Events API usage remains the same. So EventBridge is CloudWatch Events, and you may be kind of right, but in addition to the existing default event bus that accepts events from AWS event services, calls to put events, and from other authorized accounts, each partner application, as you mentioned, Shane, that you subscribe to will also create an event source that you can then associate to an event bus within your AWS account. So you can select any of your event buses, create an event bridge rule, and select targets to invoke when an incoming event matches a rule. Now, this is starting to become a little bit complex here. So before we get too much into event bridge, we may need to level set the vernacular around event bridge. So some terms to clarify here. So we've got a partner, which is an organization that has integrated their SaaS application with event bridge. There's a customer which is an organization that uses AWS and that has subscribed to a partner's SaaS application. There's a partner name, which is a unique name that identifies as 
an Amazon EventBridge partner, and there's a partner event bus, which is an event bus that is used to deliver events from a partner to AWS. There's a great diagram in a recent Jeff Barr blog, and I think it's worth talking through the logical flow of how EventBridge works. Cue the virtual whiteboard, Tom. Yes, Shane, always have my handy whiteboard with me. Um, So I'm just going to wheel this in. Um, And so if you think about this interaction between customer, partner, and EventBridge service itself, the customer um, themselves are going to start this um, request to integrate into a partner service. So through this um, this request through the partner service, the partner will then go and create a dedicated event source within um, an AWS account to the EventBridge service. Now, once the partner has created this event bus within the EventBridge service, the partner is going to provide that event source name back to the customer. And from there, the customer can create an event bus for that event source itself, add rules to the event bus, add targets to those rules. So think of a Lambda function, for example, or another AWS service or an application itself. And then that's really scaffolding together the plumbing of that event-driven architecture integration between customer's AWS account and customer application and the partner application. Now, through the use of that SaaS application, you know, the partner can then start to invoke and put events onto that event bus. It's been um, provisioned within EventBridge. And then those events are going to be delivered within to the customer's account and be able to trigger those. So if you flip this or look at an, an alternative architecture that historically has been used to integrate partner SaaS um, solutions, um, EventBridge starts to open up the question of whether this can start to replace a webhook architecture, for example, and really move towards that event-driven um, integration between customer application and workloads and partner SaaS applications. Great drawing on your virtual whiteboard there, Tom. <laughs> if you'd like to see this, put in your favorite search engine, Jeff Bar, AWS EventBridge. There's a great diagram that explains exactly what Tom just described. So EventBridge can be accessed from the management console, the CLI, or via SDKs. There are distinct commands and APIs for partners, for customers, and you'll find this in the documentation. Now, we've just spoken about this in theory, but I think we need to make this real. In most customers I deal with, PagerDuty has become a mainstay for many of these companies. Now, PagerDuty is just one of the many native integrations, but again, trying to keep this real. I just put AWS EventBridge PagerDuty into my search engine and came back with a PagerDuty KB article. So to give you like a real world example of what this could do, PagerDuty, maybe when an incident is created or updated, could send an event to a designated event source in your AWS account and region. So as Tom said, you could create an event bus to retrieve these notifications and deliver them to a target such as a Lambda function to run a specific function, workflow, SNS topic, or you know, notification for something else. So perhaps maybe you've got a PagerDuty alert to say, hey, uh, you know, a system has been compromised. Well, you could publish an event via EventBridge. You could go into AWS and you may be able to kick off a workflow to potentially you know, isolate that instance, take a snapshot of it and prepare it for forensic you know, all in an automated manner. So really, really awesome stuff here. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because what this means is monitoring is now going to be taken to that next level. Uh, not only are you going to get all that PagerDuty has to offer, but you can also start to orchestrate events to occur. You know, think of the event targets um, like Lambda uh, functions or to a Kinesis stream or SQS queues or even other event buses to other AWS accounts. So lots of different options there and really you're, it's really limited up to your imagination. 
We could riff about how good serverless is, but let's dive deeper into some of the partner integrations here, Tom. Yeah, yeah. So Shane, you mentioned some great use cases around from a security monitoring standpoint for PagerDuty. Um, but another one I like is is Zendesk um, and applying sentiment analysis and machine learning. So applying you know ML to service interactions and scoring these based on the original conversation or trigger an external workflow, or even using this information to improve your support operations or look for opportunities for product enhancements. You know, if you think you're, if you're if you're a manager out in the field and you're looking to how you can uh, coach your reps on repeated issues that are coming into your call center, um, and you know, being able to identify this, do problematic knowledge-based articles and processes and mining these support requests for up-and-coming up feature requests. So really, um, lots of lots of um, interesting use cases as more partners come on board and, and integrate their offering into, into Amazon EventBridge. Um, the, 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 I guess the, the, the ideas, as I mentioned earlier, it's really up to the, um, the limits going to be your imagination. So really exciting. Yeah, really cool. And it goes a long way to be able to make better decisions in a timely manner. And I think, you know, to emphasize that timely manner, you know, it's, I wouldn't say we're removing the human factor here, but it becomes the feedback loop becomes a lot tighter. So just quickly, in order to integrate with a partner service bus, it's a simple three-step procedure to set up my event source. So firstly, grab your AWS account ID. Hopefully, you know where that is. Number two, create your partner event bus by following the partner instructions. Then you need to allow other AWS accounts, my organization, or another organization to access events on the event bus. After you've confirmed that, you trust the origin, you can associate with it. Then from there, it's about defining a rule, which is affecting a watcher for certain events and then routes to the target of choice, like AWS Lambda, Kinesis, or any of the other 90 target services. Amazon EventBridge is available now, and you can start using it today in all public AWS regions except China and the Asia-Pacific Osaka local region. Pricing is based on the number of events published to the event buses in your account, built at $1 for every million events as of July 2019. There is no charge for events published by AWS services. Yeah, and one last point, Shane. So if you're an ISV out there or a, a customer of AWS building a SaaS um, offering and you want to get um, on board to the Amazon EventBridge partner ecosystem, um, then what I'd encourage you to do is, number one, make sure you're a registered partner in the APN uh, or AWS partner network. Um, if you're not, then become a member. And then after that, reach out to the EventBridge integration team. And this will start the process on getting your SaaS application onboarded into the Amazon EventBridge uh, marketplace, so to speak, uh, and allowing your customers to natively integrate or start to leverage Amazon EventBridge to integrate that event-driven architecture um, within your SaaS offering. Now, moving right along, slowly, slightly shifting gears, Shane, um, databases, love them or hate them, you know, they, they are a core integral part of almost every application stack. And um, in this month, we have a few updates here that we're going to skim through uh, that relate specifically to Amazon RDS which as the name implies, is our relational database service um, in the cloud that makes it easy to set up and operate and scale a relational databases. Now it comes in multiple flavors. Um, for those who aren't too familiar with Amazon RDS, um, we provide um, Microsoft SQL, Oracle, MariaDB, MySQL, PostgreSQL, um, but also our own Amazon Aurora in both MySQL and PostgreSQL um, flavors as well. Now, we aren't going to be covering RDS today, but we are going to be a little bit busy in just covering off three new updates that have recently happened in July. Update number one. So um, Amazon RDS for Oracle now supports 19.1 
um, version of Oracle Application Express, Apex, uh, for those who are familiar with it, for 11.2, 12.1, and 12.2 versions of Oracle Database. Using Apex, developers can build applications entirely within their web browser. Other than being on a supported version of Oracle with the few requirements to use um, Apex, you have to have SQL Plus on your um, DB instance to perform administrative tasks, and you have to have the following software installed on your host computer that effectively acts as the Oracle Apex listener. So these requirements are the Java runtime um, and also Oracle Net services to enable Oracle Apex listener to connect to the Amazon RDS instance. Now, Shane, over to you for the second update. Cool. Update two. So Gabe and I spoke all things Aurora in the previous episode, number 51 of Tech Chat. And then a few days later, Aurora Postgres SQL service has gone GA. So fancy that. So if you want to deep dive on what Aurora serverless is, again, see the previous episode in which we look at Aurora serverless through the lens of MySQL. But the same applies for Postgres. With Aurora serverless, you pay on a per second basis for the database capacity you use when the database is active, plus the usual Aurora storage cost. Check out the documentation for Postgres SQL specific details around Aurora serverless. It's available now in US East, North Virginia, US East, Ohio, US West, Oregon, EU, Ireland, and Asia Pacific, Tokyo. Now, update three, staying with Postgres SQL. Staying with Postgres SQL, we now have a few more permutations in the version options when selecting Postgres SQL. Following the recent announcements of updates to the Postgres SQL database, we have updated Amazon RDS to support minor versions 11.4, 10.9, 9.6.14, 9.5.18, 9.4.23. And 9.4.23. The why can be found in the release notes, but reading into them, you'll see these versions contain important security fixes, bug fixes, and improvements done by the Postgres SQL community. Just to note, with this release, PG Hint Plan Extension has been upgraded to Postgres SQL versions 11, 10, 9.6, and 9.5. So ensure you do your due diligence in testing before any upgrading. Yeah, it's super important to, to do that due diligence, Shane, um, particularly when you are making a shift to a new version. Um, and so, um, excitingly, as part of um, Amazon RDS, um, a new capability called Compatibility Checks for Upgrades has recently been released uh, for MySQL 5.7 to MySQL 8.0. Um, so, what this means is Amazon RDS now performs checks to confirm compatibility of your MySQL 5.7 database with MySQL version 8.0. Um, and so, this can stop um, upgrades if there's any compatibilities found and alerting you based on that. So this capability helps you avoid unplanned downtimes as the compatibility checks performed before the instance itself is, is stopped before that upgrade. And RDS can send you an event notification um, whenever an incompatible upgrade is detected. I had a chance to play with this. Firstly, I would take a look at the changelog between 5.7 and 8 as it's a pretty hefty upgrade. MySQL 8 includes a number of incompatibilities with MySQL 5.7. These incompatibilities can cause problems during an upgrade from 5.7 to 8. So some preparation may be required on your database for the upgrade to be successful. The following is a general list of these incompatibilities taken from our RDS documentation. Now my own WordPress database seemed to upgrade fine, but here's a laundry list that's pretty long and this just shows how 5.7 differs to 8. Now I thought about reading all of these out, but I'm going to read the first 10. So here we go. There must be no tables that use obsolete data types or functions. So obviously, you know, there's going to be some deprecation in here. There mm. must be no orphan 
file. So FRM files, triggers must not have missing or empty definer or an invalid creation context. There must be no partition table that uses storage engine that does not have a native partitioning support. There must be no keyword or reserved word violations. Some keywords might be reserved in MySQL 8 that were not previously reserved. There must be no tables in the MySQL 5.7 MySQL system database that have the same name as a table used by the MySQL 8 data dictionary. There must be no obsolete SQL modes defined in your SQL mode system variable setting. There must be no tables or stored procedures with an individual enum or set column elements that exceed 255 characters or 1020 bytes in length. Before upgrading to MySQL 8 or higher, there must be no table partitions that reside in a shared InnoDB table space. There must be no queries and stored program definitions from MySQL 8 or lower that uses the ASC or desk qualifiers by group by clauses. And finally, there must be no foreign key constraints names longer than 64 characters. I think I'm out of breath here. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, lots to go through, lots to consider. So a big yeah, shift, isn't it? Is it is a huge shift. And as you can see, you know, this isn't a jump you just want to move into. And I see this kind of like akin, if you've ever made the jump on a software stack from the likes of PHP 5 to 7, mm-hmm. it should just work. But, you know, you're probably going to have a few teething issues. So approach this jump with care. And it's good to see we've made this even easier by including compatibility checks. We had New York Summit, which, as we mentioned, launched Amazon EventBridge, but there was another event recently hosted last month too. Yeah, that's right, Shane. So last month we had um, our inaugural Reinforce um, global event. And so Reinforce is really focused at having a focused conversation over a number of consecutive days around security. As we always mention here at AWS, security is is our top priority and we encourage customers as well to consider it to be their top priority too. Um, And so having this flagship event that we can have a a consecutive number of days talking about security best practices in the cloud, how you can leverage the tools and processes that we provide for customers through our services to ensure that they're operating optimally um, is super important. Now, a feature that um, was announced at Reinforce um, and very much security focused um, is is EC2 Instance Connect. Now, um, this is another great announcement that was made um, as part of the Amazon EC2 um, service. Now, EC2 Instant Connect is um, is really just a simple way to securely connect to your instances using SSH um, via any SSH client. EC2 Instant Connect, what this does is it introduces the ability to start to bring some control around the SSH access to your instances using AWS Identity and Access Management Policies. Um, and so what this is enabling you to do is define a policy, define those, um, define the principles on who can access um, what instances. Um, but, what also, but what is also really cool is that these events are going to start to be generated uh, within AWS CloudTrail. So giving you that centralized way to audit SSH connections into your EC2 instances. Now you can leverage um, existing SSH keys, um, but what I love about this new feature is that you can further enhance your security posture by generating a one-time SSH key each time an authorized user uh, attempts a SSH connection to an EC2 instance. 
Yeah, that is pretty cool. And it's always been a challenge for customers to allow multiple users to get access to EC2 Linux instances. And this has possibly led to anti-patterns like engineers or people sharing keys or accounts, you know, a definite no-no. So EC2 Instance Connect simplifies this by allowing you to manage SSH sessions using AWS native access control mechanisms. Yeah, so getting up and running is really easy. Now, a key step is that you must first install EC2 Instance Connect package on your instances. Um, but once you've done this, um, then you can go about connect to um, to an instance using EC2 Instance Connect. Um, and so when you do this, the EC2 Instance Connect API pushes a one-time use SSH public key to the instance metadata where it will remain for 60 seconds. Now the IAM policy attached to your IAM user authorizes your IAM user to pu push the public key to the instance metadata. Now when you install the instance connect to an instance, what you'll see if you open up the sshd config file is that um, there's been a couple of lines injected into that configuration that tells the SSH daemon to look up the public key from the instance metadata and then validate this for authentication and connection to the instance. So to summarize, um, so getting up and running is, is super easy. Make sure you have your security groups associated to the instance that allows that correct inbound access for SSH, number one. Number two, install the EC2 Instance Connect package on your instance or instances. Um, configure the IAM policy, attach it to your user. And then from there, you can either um, connect via SSH using the AWS console um, and the EC2 service within that um, to your EC2 instance. Use your favorite SSH tool um, or even leverage the EC2 Connect CLI tool that we've released as well. That's right, Tom. I found it really easy to set up and super useful. It allows you to connect with IAM policies. And I just want to reiterate, Tom mentioned the Instance Connect CLI tool. Now, this is not the same as the AWS CLI. See our documentation, which of course is linked off the EC2 Instance Connect homepage on how to install, but you need to use pip and it's as simple as, you know, pip install EC2 Instance Connect CLI. And once you've done this, using it is as simple as typing MSSH and the instance ID. As a bit of a bonus and not something our product details calls out, Instance Connect not only provides a few ways to connect as Tom mentioned, but you can have fine-grained control via an IAM policy to either allow connections to your EC2 instances either via the console and an SSH client or just the EC2 Instance Connect CLI tool, which is ultimately allowing you to reduce your surface attack area. Let's quickly touch on OS support as EC2 Instance Connect isn't supported on all OSs. Currently, there's only support for Ubuntu 16.04 and greater and Amazon Linux 2 today with more flavors on the way. Yeah, and you can find EC2 Instance Connect uh, now available in US East, Ohio and North Virginia, US West, North California and Oregon, in Asia Pacific, in Mumbai, Seoul, Singapore, Sydney and Tokyo regions, uh, Canada Central um, and in the EMEA regions, Frankfurt, Ireland, London and Paris and South America in Sao Paulo. Um, so lots of lots of uh, region availability there. Uh, and best of all, um, this new feature comes at no additional cost. Okay, and with that, Tom, I think we're out of time. We covered. Well, hang on, Shane, hang on. We've got a few more minutes, I think. And so let's try and slot in a couple more announcements. All right, I'm going to give you three minutes. All right, so keep it short and snappy here. All right, stopwatch, start. <laughs> 
Go. All right, so for the end user compute listeners, we have a couple of updates here that I thought really important to call out because um, um, some really important updates to our core two services, Amazon AppStream and Amazon Workspaces. So Amazon AppStream um, is adding support for both Windows Server 2016 and Server 2019 base images for standard, compute optimized, memory optimized, and graphics pro instance families. So this is really good for customers um, who have standardized on Windows 2016 or 2019, and therefore they can start to bring their own application packages and host them within Amazon AppStream on that base OS image. Um, so that's AppStream. Now for workspaces. Uh, so now with workspaces, you can start copying your Amazon workspaces images cross region. So what this means is you can start to use that same image across multiple regions, making it simpler to manage global deployment of your workspaces and keeping that consistency um, high uh, and also retaining compliance and security of your workspaces. So to copy an image to another region is really simple. Launch the workspaces console, select the region that contains your existing image in the navigation page, choose the image that you want to, uh, you want to copy um, to a double, another region and specify that to copy that to the target region. Um, you can also use uh, the copy workspace image API to programmatically do this via, via the CLI. Now, Shane, I think I'm about two minutes in here. I think you're actually at a bit under. The stopwatch is going. Oh, nice. Great. One more, one more thing to add. Um, as part of the inaugural Reinforce um, event that I mentioned um, that happened uh, in June in Boston, uh, we announced the general availability of two services, Security Hub and Control Tower. Now, we covered these two services during our reInvent wrap-up episodes earlier this year. So revisit these if you want to dive deep into uh, the what and the how and the why of these two services. Um, but it's great to see these services being released into the wild and help simplify certain core aspects of cloud security and operating models for our customers. I think that's it, Shane. I think that's all I wanted to run through. Awesome. So I don't know if you're over, but I'll tell you post-editing. What I do know, <laughs> Tom, is we are now definitely out of time for today. So today, we've covered a round of updates that occurred in the month of July in the year 2019. We started the show with two CloudWatch updates. CloudWatch Anomaly Detection applies machine learning to continuously analyze specific CloudWatch metrics, determines a nominal baseline and surfaces anomalies, all without user intervention, before introducing you to CloudWatch Container Insights, and as the sticker says, is a fully managed service to help monitor and troubleshoot containers. Both of these additions aren't GA, so they're in public preview, so I encourage you to get your hands dirty and have a play. Yeah, another thing that we covered off today was Amazon EventBridge, which is a serverless event bus that routes real-time data streams from your applications and services to targets like AWS Lambda. EventBridge facilitates event-driven application development by simplifying the process of ingesting, delivering events across your application architecture and providing built-in security and error handling. What's more, there is built-in integrations to our SaaS partners and technology partners like Zendesk, PagerDuty, and more. So if you're looking to sign up to this, as I mentioned earlier, jump onto the partner um, network page or, or AWS APN page and start that process. Four updates for RDS. Postgres Aurora Serverless has gone GA. There's a new Apex version, 19.1 for Oracle RDS. Postgres SQL supports new minor versions and MySQL introduces compatibility checks for the upgrade from MySQL 5.7 to 5.8. EC2 Instance Connect introduced us to an ability to control SSH access to your instances using AWS IAM policies. 
Plus, with CloudTrail events, giving you a centralized way to audit your SSH connections. Yeah, and last but not least, I snuck in a few um, items around our end-user compute um, space, um, updates to AppStream and workspaces, with AppStream offering um, availability for Windows Server 2016 and 2019 base images, and workspaces now allowing you to copy workspace images across AWS regions. Listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. We love a good feedback email. Join us again in two weeks' time, to which we'll be back with a themed episode based on a backlog from you, the listener. So again, let us know what you'd like to hear about. But until next time, bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.